I'm Jody Millman, and this is Backstage with the Bardavon. Our podcast will draw back the curtain and bring you backstage at the Bardavon 1869 Opera House that is located in Poughkeepsie, New York. For more than 150 years, notables such as Mark Twain, Frank Sinatra, James Earl Jones, Mary Tyler Moore, Santana, Aretha Franklin, and John Legend have graced its stage. In these days of COVID-19, our podcast has reached out to residents of the Hudson Valley who have been instrumental in the development of our unique music scene. Joining us today is Morali Coriel, acclaimed singer, guitarist, and songwriter, and of course, Hudson Valley resident. Morali's blues guitar chops have landed him on stages around the world and into the New York State Blues Hall of Fame. His nine albums, most recently made in Texas, confirmed his musical lineage as the son of the late, great jazz legend, Larry Coriel. Morali, welcome to Backstage with the Bardavon. Okay, well, good morning, Morali. Welcome to Backstage with the Bardavon. How are things over in your, your neck of the woods? Good morning. Everything good over there? What's that? Is everything good over there? Yeah, we got some snow. Yeah, we got some snow on the ground, but I'm going to go out and get some more salt today. <laughs> and, you know, so my wife can get back, you know, uh, into the driveway up and down safely because we have a very steep driveway. Oh, really? And, uh, you know. She's yeah, a nurse, right? The, the greatest right? thing we ever got was a snow snowblower, <laughs> the only way. And we've had the same one for 20 years. <laughs> So it's it's that that was a good investment. You know? Sounds like a good investment to me. I see. Speaking of investments, you've got uh, quite a few guitars hanging on your wall behind you. Any history, particular yeah, history I, I to got these guitars, babies? Uh, I have guitar. I have. I, I I love my guitars, and I have like a bunch of them. I don't have the most of anybody, and I'm not the biggest guitar like nerd, uh, you know, <laughs> guy in the world. But I love my guitars. Every single one is a is a personal friend of mine, mm. and sometimes they're family members because they were my father's guitars. Oh, that's very cool. So, yeah. Are there and, any? Um, which one is your so, favorite? Um, Do you have go, a favorite child? Oh yeah, you see, that's like asking the same thing. <laughs> like, which is your favorite <laughs> recording of yours or child? <laughs> um, well, he, here's the thing: you use different guitars. For different reasons it's like having the right tool for the job kind of but what i will say is kind of my my go-to guitar that i can use for anything and everything and it's extremely durable um and it stays in tune it's amazing it's an eric johnson stratocaster um and so I, if i had to pick you know grab one mm -hmm. you know if there was a fire or something I mean, but, you know, the ones from my father are really special. I mean, they were, um, you know, he, he never actually made a will, but he told us during his lifetime, like, my brother Julian, you're going to get the Super 400, uh, and Morale, you're going to get my um, Martin, mm -hmm. you know, signature model. Mm -hmm. And so, although, you know, when you have, like, deaths and my father was married three times and you know sometimes it's complicated when people die and it comes down to you know dividing up money and mm -hmm. possessions and things like that um but at least everybody agreed everybody knew that okay julian's getting that the super 400 morale's getting this mm -hmm. and so that was really important and and then uh on september 11th 
before the pandemic, obviously, I flew to Los Angeles from Austin, Texas for one day and came back the same day because my father's former manager, who later on went on to become the manager for Halle Berry, Mm -hmm. the actress, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, he still had a guitar that he had been holding on to for 40 years that belonged to my father. No kidding. And he said, yeah, and he said, I don't play guitar. I don't have any kids. I don't need the money to sell it. You know, I think you should have it. And it was amazing. And that that's the kind of thing it's like you can't put a price on it. And the bizarre thing is it looked untouched. It looked like it was still, it was from 1973 or something like that. What kind that. of guitar was that? A Loprinci, a, a, a numbered Loprinci, which is a very rare, it's a company or a maker in New Jersey. Mm. And I don't even care how much it's uh, worth. It's just, it's, it's uh, priceless to me. When I think of the fact that my father recorded, I know he wrote and recorded certain of his songs on that guitar, mm. you know? Yeah. It's got, I mean, not to get, you know, creepy, but it even had like a spot of his blood on the guitar, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I was like, there's, there's his DNA if I ever need to clone him, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, my, you know, but, but you know, and, and he left behind, I mean, this is a reason why my father, although now it's been nearly four years now, it'll be coming up in, in February, hey, since he passed away. Um, I have found like music charts that he's written, you know, handwritten, like for me. Oh, really? And I, all I do is o- open it up and I, and, and there's my dad give me a music lesson. Right. Oh, nice. You know? And, and of course, there's thousands of YouTube videos of him, and I'm in a lot of them, you know? And, and, and so, you know, there's a lot there. I mean, he left so much. And every uh, person I've ever met, like all these famous people, Wayne Shorter and Stevie Ray Vaughan, Mick Taylor, the list goes on. And I made a list, and those people weren't even on the list. Um, they all told me stories about my dad. Mm. You know, Mick Jagger, same thing. We're sitting there talking about Eric Clapton. He talks about my dad and that show that we did in London with Leon Russell and Freddie King. And it's like, wow. You know, and these are people that I grew up as a child idolizing these people before I could even play music. Miles Davis would be at our house and, you know, you know, like the E.F. Hutton commercials, when E.F. E. Hutton would talk, everybody would stop and listen. Mm-hmm. That's what it was like with Miles Davis. Mm. I mean, it, and he rarely said anything, but when he did, in that, in that voice of his, yeah. you know. <laughs> and, and so one of my most famous stories is on my 10th birthday, we were living in Westport, Connecticut. My parents, had, we, our whole family had just been featured in People magazine. You know, we were pretty much like... <laughs> you were superstars, yeah. Yeah, no, it was. It was that time. And, and, and um, so Miles Davis was over there. And without getting too detailed, I would say he was doing things that would be uh, illegal then and illegal now. <laughs> okay. And and my, my, my mother, you know, who, who wrote the book Jazz Rock Fusion, The People, The Music, and she was granted the only interview with Miles Davis in during the 70s when he was semi-retired. And my father had been playing with Miles and those recordings, I believe some of them 
might be available now. I know they're on YouTube, uh, but a long time the record company didn't want to release them for whatever reason. Anyway, so Miles is doing his thing, sitting on the couch and there's stuff on the table. And uh, my mom says, Miles, it's Morali's birthday. And I remember it clear as yesterday. He looked at me and he said, it's your birthday, man. <laughs> and then he took a $100 bill and gave me a $100 bill. <laughs> and he said, he said, happy birthday, man. <laughs> <laughs> those may have been the only words he ever said to me for yeah, right. <laughs> but boy did it make an impact happy birthday man wow yeah <coughs> so and now what did you do with the hundred bucks I grew, that, that's the environment in which i grew up but what'd you do with the hundred bucks do you remember i, I you know what i went and bought gi joes <laughs> i just went to the toy store you yeah. know i was 10 yeah, right. Hey, and if yeah. you had those GI Joes today, they'd be worth. They it. would be worth a exactly, lot. Yeah. exactly yeah. more than a hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so that's an exciting life. I mean, you toured with your dad too, didn't you? Yes, yes. Uh, with with my father, one of my favorite things I ever ever did was to have my dad be my guest for my gig. For my yeah. gig because whenever it was his gig whether my brother and i were both on it or whether it was just him or just me or all three of us dad was the boss he laid down the law i'm the boss i'm the big i'm the name it's me and we're doing what i say and i know how to put together a show and he was right mm -hmm. he was right you know uh he was very old school um i mean one of the things he said you know, a band leader should be a benevolent dictator, you know, and <laughs> yeah. um, things like, uh, you know, one time one musician asked him, uh, why am I only getting paid this much? He says, well, you know, you have to know the golden rule because what's that? He says, he who ho has the gold makes the rules, <laughs> you know? And, and so he, he had all these nuggets and tidbits of information that I grew up just and not even realizing how much I was learning about the music business. Mm. I mean, for example, he told me before I was e even played music, maybe, or maybe when I just started, he said, just remember, keep your publishing. I didn't even know what he was talking about. Right, right. But I, that stuck with me. And then I think when, when I learned what music publishing is and how you get paid twice, you know, it was like, oh, dad is helping me to make more money. Right. You know, right. from my, if I have decided to have used my talent for that, this is, you know, oh, oh gosh. Did my wife and I saw an incredible movie yesterday uh called one night it's about sam cook where it's with sam cook cassius clay malcolm x and jim brown are one all night in miami scene. regina king yes yes one night yes, in miami it's, yes it's amazing is it and it's historically accurate because mm -hmm. i watched it and i know it, kind of my specialty about all those people i i know about um and so sam cook said i don't want just a piece of the pie i want the recipe because oh, they were nice. talking about getting equal for black people. Like, don't just give me a head. You know what I mean? And right. so he had his own record company 
Right. Um, he signed artists like Johnny Taylor and Bobby Womack, an incredible artist. And he, he, he knew what he was doing. He, he, he was so far ahead. I mean, you know what I mean? That yes. whole thing. Yeah. He, he was so smart. And, 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 and it's no like, and so Sam Cooke for me has always been one of my um, most important singers. He's like a perfect singer. Mm. Okay. And then when I learned about socially, things that he did and business-wise how he took control of his having his own masters and his own publishing okay um so th th these are and then of course when it comes to the music the song that change is going to come which is really you know that's really the pinnacle when he wanted to make a social statement he heard bob dylan's blown in the wind and he was like mad because he want wish he wrote it and mm -hmm. i know that feeling and then so he he said, well, I'm going to write a song like that. And Change is going to Come is one of the deepest songs that there ever is. And, and I've done, you know, thousands of versions of it. And I recorded it years ago. And I did intentionally do it in a different uh, way, like covered it as opposed to kind of copy the original arrangement. I did it more upbeat, mm -hmm. different kind of uh, feel because i just i wanted to do it differently but you know generally when i do it now i do it the sam cook way because it's hard to beat it yeah. if you can if you can sing it if you can hit those notes and really lay into them and especially if you have a drummer with like a gospel background that understands how to bam <laughs> hit like here's one of my um whole concepts about music and approach to it. I often tell musicians that I'm playing with, I've play, been play, blessed to play with so many musicians, famous and not famous. Um, but I tell them, especially the drummers, because the drummers are so important. I say, think of each song as if we're climbing a mountain. Okay, we're getting higher, we're getting higher, we're getting higher. And we get when we get to the end of the song, that's the climax. Mm. We need to reach the highest point. And when I listen to some of my favorite tracks of all time, like, for example, Let's Stay Together by Al Green, that song starts mellower and it retains that mellowness, but then it builds in intensity. And there, and, and there's, um, I saw a uh, video with Steve Gadd, the great drummer, mm -hmm. who is another person who I you know, grew up around. And somebody asked him, how do you become more intense without playing louder or speeding up? You know, and so musical intent is another big thing. You just kind of concentrate and focus more on that note. Mm. Um, so I'm getting into all different things here, and I apologize. No, it's exciting. No, this is a masterclass. Was uh, did your father ever encourage you or discourage you from playing music? Did he ever say, "Kid, this is the lifestyle that you want," or uh, did he, or did he say, "You know, kid, come on in. I'll teach you everything that there is to know." Okay, here, therein lies a little story. So, um, I was more interested in, like, uh, my father and all of his friends, they were so great to me that I couldn't imagine. Like, they set a standard in music that I saw, and, I, and they, were at, they were literally at the top of, the, right. of their games. Right. The, the, the virtuosity, like, as good as anybody can play and as creative um, at their peaks. And, um, and I just said, well, no way I, I, I can't, I can't, I, I can't ever do that. Mm. I don't know how these people do it. It looked like magic to me, you know? Um, however, 
my brother, Julian, my younger brother, Julian, he, it turned out he had perfect pitch. Okay. Um, and then, so he started playing at seven years old. There's so like three year difference between us. And man, he just started playing and playing and playing and he got good real fast. Okay. Mm. So this got him a lot of attention, you know, from my, both my parents, you know, because it was known obviously that if we wanted to go into music, they're cool with that, you know, mm -hmm. whereas a lot of people, if they didn't come from a musical family, they're like, oh, no, you're not doing that. Um, there's no, you know, money or future or security in that, which is kind of true in a lot of ways. Um, so at any rate, you know, I've heard that you are influenced more by your sibling than your parents. Mm -hmm. So turns out because my dad was gone a lot he was gone for months at a time you know touring and recording so so i heard my brother practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing and eventually and i loved music i loved music i mean it was like as important to me as anything but i was couldn't imagine myself i said maybe i'll be a producer or a critic or something like that i don't think i could play it it's certainly not at that level but then there came a point between hearing my brother's relentless practicing and how he got good. I mean, man, he got good. He got good fast. Mm. And I was like, wow, man, you know. Um, but I had my own ideas about music, you know, like what I wanted to do. What he was doing was different than what my main interest was, mm -hmm. okay? Because I was more into rock and blues, and mm -hmm. classic rock, that kind of stuff. And then um, I just decided, and, and so at some point, I, I decided I just wanted, I don't care if I get good. I don't care if I do this as a profession. I just want to do this. You know, I want to be able to play for myself. That's what it was. Mm. I said, I want to be able to, like, I don't have to play complicated stuff. I just want to play simple stuff. And so that's how it started. And then I eventually through uh, my father sent me to a teacher because he didn't have the patience for me. <laughs> but then seriously, yeah, but yeah. at the same time, he was taking my brother, my little brother on the road and they were playing with Herbie Mann and all kinds of famous people. And my brother was killing it. He was killing it. He's in an instructional video, um, Arlen Roth in Hot Licks that was in the eighties. And my brother is like 15 years old with super long hair. You can't even see his face. And he's just shredding, you know, <laughs> along with my dad, you know, in this video. So he was like, you know, I would say like his his rock uh, main, you know, kind of first influence was Eddie Van Halen. Oh boy, so all yep. that kind of technique. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then for me, it was really like Jimi Hendrix, mm -hmm. you know. So then... And the British guys, too, you know. Um, but then I went to my dad at one point and said, you know, listen to this Led Zeppelin. or And, you know, he said, well, if you want to hear what these guys listen to, you need to listen to Robert Johnson and Muddy Waters and Otis Rush. Um, and I also remember my father gave me two uh, record albums when I was like, 
10. It was around the same time of ten, my 10th birthday. It probably was that 10th birthday. Okay. So one of them was Steely Dan's Greatest Hits with the two record set, mm -hmm. which is like, I just played it over and over and over. I mean, I memorized every, you know, I can sing every instrument on everything where my brother can actually play every instrument of every Steely Dan track ever. Okay. Um, but the other one was Are You Experienced by Jimi Hendrix. Mm -hmm. And that one, that just took me, I mean, when I first heard the backward stuff and the, the electric sound and the, the, the stuff like Third Stone from the Sun, and it was just, wow, it was like a trip, you know? And, and so that, and so I remember I used to listen on headphones. I'd sit there listening on headphones, just really soaking it in. And, uh, and then eventually, when I learned how to play guitar, my, my father, who had played with Jimi Hendrix, I'm sitting there futzing around trying to learn how to play Little Wing. Mm -hmm. And he goes, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, first of all, he tuned his guitar down to E flat. You're trying to learn this in E. You either need to learn it in E, play it in E, or turn your tune your guitar down to E flat. Mm. You know, so that I mean, it's literally impossible to play the Jimi Hendrix stuff in its original key unless you tune it down by a half step. It's impossible. Okay, if somebody has figured it out, let me know. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and so later on, uh, and, and then so he, he, and then I was like, well, then how do you do um, castles made of sand? You know, what's yeah. this chord? You know, the opening chord, you know. And then I found out that that chord, that's used in a number of Jimi, Jimi Hendrix songs. So it's like once you learn a certain number of songs and chords, you then you realize you can apply those same chords and patterns to other songs. Mm. And then you can use it as a songwriting technique mm. also if you decide to get into that. Right. You know? Right. So. So did your father ever say, did you ever, did he ever sit down and give you lessons? Like when you, when you, yes. brought to, okay. And was Jimmy It was Hendrix, always a lesson. It was always a lesson. It was, I, I couldn't bring him to my house for a social visit without it turn, turning into a massive, <laughs> he would whisk me into the other room away from my wife and family and, uh, you know, drill me <laughs> for like two hours on something that was too hard for me. I wasn't really ready for it. I didn't really feel like doing it. But we did it. Right. And and you were happy yeah. in the long run, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, priceless moments, you know. And Absolutely. My, my, my dad, I mean, gosh, uh, he was a character. And again, like, like for example, at the, the at the Bardavon, talking about the Bardavon, uh, many years ago, I opened up for Greg Allman. Mm -hmm. And man, that was an incredible night. Um. First of all, Greg Allman came into my dressing room down there, and I didn't even recognize who he was, okay? So he walks, this man walks into my dressing room, and he says, your brother and my dad used to play together. And I actually said to him, oh, who are you? He said, I'm Greg Allman. I said, oh, my gosh, Greg, hey, how are you? Sorry, I didn't recognize you. 
Um, so then when I went to go do my 30 minute opening set, which was so exciting, right? It's a packed house. Everybody loves the kind of music that I play. And I'm a local guy. It's been pumped up uh, by, you know, Cooper and Tobin on the radio mm-hmm. over there on PDH and everywhere else. Uh, or, you know, whichever radio stations are doing promotion, probably all of them, KZE, DST, Greg Allman is a big deal. So probably everybody did. But uh, so we start out and I think it was definitely maybe 15 seconds into my first set. Bing! My guitar breaks a string. Oh my gosh. So, okay. I had a backup. I had a backup guitar. I had a, had a second guitar just in case that happens because I'm playing with a trio, right? So it's not like I could just give a solo to the keyboard player and it sounds weird to give a solo to the drummer and the bass player right away, okay? <laughs> right. Like we burst out with this big, you know, heavy opening, you know, get your attention and then we fall out, you know? So this just not, it's not going this planned, okay? So the Greg Allman's guitar tech notices what's ha- what just happened, okay? And so he grabs my guitar and he hands it to me and he takes my guitar with the broken string. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So bam, I'm back into it. I'm I'm rocking. I'm rocking. I'm rocking. I'm rocking. And it was made. It it couldn't have been more than a minute. Bling. Another string breaks. And I'm like, no, now I'm out of bullets. Now I'm out of guitars. What do I do now? Okay. And so I've been in that position before where like, okay, you just have to play the rest of the song with five strings. Let's hope you really don't need that other string. Okay. Uh, This is going to test your ability to, you know, improvise on the fly. So, however, I turn... uh, to the stage, uh, to the stage uh, left, and uh, there's Greg Allman's guitar tech handing me my first guitar, which he has restrung it Whoa. and tuned it. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now it's restrung, it's tuned. There I go. <laughs> so three times I had three tries at it, and the third one, and then I proceeded to do. One, what, what people have told me, man, that was like the one of your best sets ever. And the thing is, is like it, it almost was a disaster and it got saved. It was like in the Sam Cooke one night in Miami when the PA went out, all the musicians left. And then he got people to start clapping and stomping and got an acapella and, 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 and got the audience, yeah. you know, on his side. Yeah, yeah. And that is the it's showmanship and, it, you know, like that. The ability to recognize a room and connect with and figure out what to do. Mm. Because what you want, you just want an engaged audience that cares. Mm. You know, it's really nice when they're there to listen. And, 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 and when you know you're not trying to win them over as far as like, do you like this kind of music? Do you care about music at all? Right, right. Yeah. So you've traveled all, all over the world. Have you found that there's a particular country that responds more to your music than others? That is such a great question. Um, I would say the country of, um, of Texas. Really? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, 
I've spent the country uh, of Texas. I, did my I last like that. Three CDs in Texas. Five more minutes. Okay. Uh, so besides that, as being in its special category, um, gosh, you know, I have to say when I uh, performed in Russia for three weeks. And I speak Russian, Yagavoru Paruski, Ochun Harisho, Kaksiwa, Sivonia, Paka, Privet. You're just people, showing off now. <laughs> yes, I am. I am. And can we? Um, and can can this be aired? Yeah. What you just said. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when I went there, it was about three years ago with with Bill Evans, the saxophonist who used to play with Miles Davis. These people, it, it, for many of them, it was maybe the only concert they were going to see in a year or two years. Mm -hmm. So you had young people, you had old uh, grandmothers, uh, and they wanted to, they kissed you. They wanted their, their photos. We mm -hmm. all said, this is the b biggest photo crowd ever. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been all over, and these people were just like, they just loved us mm. and and russia of course has a history of appreciating you know concerts and you know theater and opera and and we played on this bill evans tour it was um booked by the u.s state department with the russia government we played in all of the um uh what do you call it the the, the not the balshoi do we play there balshoi theater all the um the, the big theaters, you know, um, where they had operas and, and, and all those things. So, so, th so those people, I mean, it was overwhelming, mm -hmm. but, uh, I mean, I also remember when I went to Istanbul many years ago, uh, and we and were playing with Duke Robillard and which is, you know, a blues group. And it was like, we were like the Beatles, in the, you know, the, it was young screaming girls rushing the stage. Um, I mean, really, I mean, Switzerland, I mean, yeah, I mean, what I will say is Europe and what I will say is other countries appreciate our music in a different way than Americans do. And so everywhere I've gone, they have shown that, you know, they have demonstrated that. And all over the world, the people love our music. I mean... Right, and it goes back, and the reason why blues is so important to me is because it's the roots of of everything. After, after European classical music, you know, blues is the roots of uh, rock and roll and jazz, and you're talking about gospel music, and then, you know, and then the influence of uh, Latin influences and uh, African influences. Um, so the world of music is so large and, and incredible, and, and uh, I'm just, I'm proud I was born into a musical family and my, I also want to thank my family, mm. uh, Mary, who's a nurse at Kingston Hospital right mm. now, hopefully getting her second vaccine dose. Uh, my son, Charlie, who's a sophomore at Bard, doing amazing, and he's a great piano player. And my son, Jackson, who's a senior at, uh, at Antiora. Mm. And um, so without them, I couldn't, um, you know, do be, be who I am. And of course, you know, I, you know, miss my mom and dad, my grandparents, uncles, cousins, all my family that's um, passed on and I try to honor, you know, um, my time here and make it better, you know, make it better. Well, you you were on tour and you actually you're spending a lot more time with your family now because of the pandemic and you were brought home from the beginning of a tour, weren't you? And all this started last, uh, last February and March. So how have you been yeah. spending your time? Well, 
for, uh, when I came back, my last gig was Green Hall, uh, which is the oldest dance hall in Texas. Um, and it was like packed and it was great. But then the next day, everything got shut down. Mm-hmm. So um, St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, I flew back from Austin um, back home. And it was like a ghost town and everything was so uncertain. And I said, this is not going away. And I just felt like it was like kind of my duty that but my reaction uh, to seeing that my job was eliminated was to get a job as an essential worker at my local grocery store. And I worked in the delicatessen and I worked in the meat department and I did that for eight months. And uh, I worked really hard and never called in sick. I never complained. Uh, I'm very happy for what I did. Uh, and now that I've, um, you know, uh, the Zoom, I got my Zoom stuff going. I've got a job uh, teaching with a, a Texas jazz and blues camp. And that's, um, you know, providing some some work. Um, private students um and also um you know working on uh, trying to get your revenue streams you know from your from my albums and promoting those things having a presence on social media um you know to, to kind of maximize what i have i have 10 cds you know to my credit now and um every one of them is um you know i'm really proud of and the first two eyes wide open in 2120 are now officially out of stock you know you have to <laughs> try to get them on uh, eBay or something now. But that was the goal is to, you know, get your records out there. And- well, you were talking about, um, you know, making a non-musical contribution to society because of uh, the pandemic. Um, how do you see, how do you see the music scene being re- rehabilitated after the vaccines are available and people are, are back and able to go outside? You know, are you starting to talk about tours again in 2022? Or what do you, you know, what's what's your take on where we're going after all this? Well, like, no, this year, I like, okay, you, you mentioned outside. And th- that's where all the gigs that I've done since the pandemic or right before it were all outside or basically. So like in Texas, the weather is obviously warmer. And, you know, I spoke to my drummer, Ernie uh, Darawa in Austin, and, you know, we're planning on June or July, you know, Mm -hmm. like he he got vaccinated. He's a, he's like 78 years old, you know, Mm -hmm. so he got vaccinated. He's what he wants to get a second dose. And uh, so we're planning on that. And, and so uh, many of the venues were purposely seeking venues and venues are seeking to do that, to have outside, you know, things to, mm-hmm. you know, to do that. And then obviously when it comes to indoors, you have to have, uh, you know, ventilation and spacing and, you know, people wearing masks or whatever, whatever the CDC or the health experts, you know, determine. Um, so, but, you know, the, the people that I, you know, the, the, the big industry, like the big uh, famous people, I don't think they're planning on doing stuff until 2022, a lot of them, you know, Uh, but many of us that kind of depend on, you know, like we, we need to work. I mean, like we want to play, but we we, we need to earn some income, you know, playing music. Uh, And so we want to obviously um, that process to be facilitated. I was a little heartened to hear some like elected representatives talking about the fact that the, 
um, the restaurant industry and clubs and the entertainment industry, music industry, they're really hit the hardest. They're hit yeah, really abso- hard. Yeah, None absolutely. Of them. There's absolutely. no work for any of those people or maybe for a very small percentage. Um, so, you know, if we can get, if people can get help and try to, you know, weather the storm until, you know, you know, people, I mean, I personally feel, you know, whenever I get vaccinated, whenever that is, then I'm good, Mm. you know, then I can, I still will wear the masks and, you know, all that stuff and social distancing. Um, but I think that's the idea, right? I mean, once you get vaccinated, you're, you should be immune from it, basically, for the, you know, very high percentage. Right, so. right. So. Well, we're all you know. living in, in strange times, but it's great to hear that you're, you know, you're able to teach and you're able to, you know, plan for the future because, you know, it's, uh, you know, I hate to say it's a cliche. We're all in this together. We're all waiting to get through this pandemic together. And one of the yeah. things I think that really unifies us is the arts. You know, it's yes. an escape from what's going on right now. Like you were talking about Netflix, you know, I mean, that's the type of thing where people are, you know, that's like a a warm, fuzzy blanket. They're watching Netflix or they're listening to your music or they're watching your dad's YouTube videos. It's all those things that are getting us through it. What's happening is my, in my house is they're binge watching Jeopardy. Jeopardy going back to the beginning or watching it Uh, now. They, they they pick different ones. Oh, really? Yeah. It's on Hulu. So they're just, it's on for like hours and we're like how did you know that and i'm like i'm i'm saying to myself wow my family i have a smart family I mean, they, you know and, and then we all get in there and it's like you know i am very proud of my family and you know the the pandemic has forced families to be together and some families well it's no doubt i think it's created stress amongst all families when suddenly everybody's thrust together in the same space in stressful situations but I'm so happy that we all came together because my kids, they, 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 you know, they, they really respect, you know, what, what I did, you know, going to work every day for the family, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it, you know, so that's, that's a lesson. Maybe I would never have been able to show, you know, that lesson. And, and I try to say that, you know, even bad things that happen, you know, if you can learn from it and, and uh, you know, improve, you know, it'd be better. Um, you know, it's all, all part of the process. I think that definitely family relationships are the silver lining to this whole terrible thing. I mean, we had our yeah. our son, our infant grandson and daughter-in-law living with us for about six months. And I mean, I never wow. would have been able to spend that time with them if it hadn't been for the pandemic. So it's uh, there's little things to be thankful for. And I'm thankful that you were able to join us here today, Morali. Hope you Jody, enjoyed yourself. My- it's been my pleasure. I, you, can, you can tell I'm very passionate and, and love what I do. And I love talking and connecting with people, uh, like-minded people. So well, I'm glad. I hope you come back thank and you. visit us again really soon. Anytime. Great. Thanks again. Thanks again to Morali Coriel and the Bardavon 1869 Opera House for supporting our Backstage with the Bardavon podcast. Backstage with the Bardavon is produced by Patrick Watson and Jody Millman. Sound engineering and editing is by Ben Harris. If you're enjoying this podcast, please review it on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Backstage with the Bardavon. Thanks again for listening and see you next time Backstage at the Bardavon.